I like what you said about listening because if you're talking, if you're in a sales job and you're talking, I guarantee you, you're not closing. The way you close, it starts with listening. And God gave us two ears and one mouth. And God had some simple math for us. He, he destined us, we're supposed to speak half as much as we listen. Or to restate that, you're supposed to listen twice as much as you speak. Mm -hmm. And for a salesperson, it's pretty simple. The, if there's no trust, there's no sale, right? Well, if you're talking over the customer, that's not trusting. The way that a customer builds trust with you is they ask you questions and then you respond. And you, and you try to, the goal is, is to be as direct with your response as possible, not to try to take them down this long rabbit trail and get back to it. And a lot of these salespeople really overcomplicate things. It's like, why'd you say that, man? Just tell them the answer. You know, how much does it cost? Well, I don't know exactly how much it costs, but it's gonna be between this price and this price. Like, give me a range or answer. So this is something I've dealt with a lot. Training salespeople on how to talk to their customers, how to do the greeting. The greeting is actually really important because in that first 30 seconds, if you don't talk to the customer right or if you don't do the greeting, you're going to irritate them. And it's amazing how many times we see people hang up on the calls within the first minute. And you're like, what happened? You analyze the greeting and you're like, the customer said, I'm not going to deal with your shit. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this show, you can go to our website, myexperiencedrealtor.com. You can click on the uh, podcast button and uh, scroll down to this episode, other episodes, read more. And also, you can uh, go to that homepage, click find a trusted professional, and we'll be able to uh, find you somebody to help you out looking for real estate anywhere on the planet. Somebody that knows how to look after your interests. But go back to that podcast button, click on this episode Fellow Marine, buddy, how are you doing? So, anyhow, Alex Fender and I met several years ago. How did we? Was it was it Donnie Bowen we met? We met through Donnie at uh, your pizza place over in Arlington. Okay, okay, that's right. And that was that was when it first opened back in '11, right? A long time ago. I was going to say about ten years ago. ago. Okay, yeah, I was sitting here actually. It just hit me. I was like, man, how did we get connected? So uh, we're going to dive into more of Alex's journey, but i got to start every one of these off with a joke. My father-in-law said i got to do a joke, so I intentionally do bad jokes. So I'm going to do a bad joke. You ready for this, Alex? Yes, sir. Fire okay. away. I used to think I was indecisive, but now I'm not sure. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so, Alex, for the audience, tell them where, uh, where you come from and how you know, – where, where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up? And how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, sounds good. So uh, I grew up dirt poor in Richardson, Texas. I grew up without a dad. I had a single mom. She uh, struggled for a long time. I went to uh, Bertner High School. I graduated on Friday. I was in Marine Corps boot camp Monday morning. I was ready to, to get away from being dirt poor. I didn't know the Marines were going to make me even poorer for a few more years. <laughs> but uh, that was my destiny. I had a, a long lineage of family members that served in the military, but I was the first Marine. My uh, father, I mean, uh, my grandfather had a uh, silver star and. the uh, 
the uh, Philippines fighting during World War II, had many uncles in the Air Force and Navy and Vietnam, and then I decided I was going to be different and go become a jarhead. So what, what drew you to the Marines rather than the other branches since that's where you kind of had a family lineage through? Well, uh, it was somewhere between dumb luck and fate, and I actually wanted to join the Army initially and become a helicopter pilot. In fact, I hadn't even, when I went down to enlist, I first went to the Navy because when I was five, I saw the movie Top Gun and Tom Cruise, and he was riding that crotch rocket, and then he got in that jet, and he was going, you know, balls to the wall, hair on fire. I was like, that's going to be me one day. And so I went to the Air Force recruiter, and those guys were like, they were just too good for me, you know. And then I went next to the Navy. I scored real high on the ASFAB, and they kept trying to put me in a damn submarine. And I said, man, if you tell me about a damn submarine job one more time, I'm here to fly. You talk, talk to me about putting me in the ocean one more time, I'm walking out. He goes, okay, 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 da-da-da-da-da, and then back to the sub. He's, he's like, you're smart enough to be a nuclear engineer. It's like, I'm not here for that, so I left. So I go over to the Army recruiter, and uh, Sergeant Parker, he said, hey, you can do this, become enlisted, go warrant officer, and then you'll be a helicopter pilot. And I was like, cool, sign me up. So a few weeks later, I come back in to sign up, and Sergeant Parker wasn't there. So I go next door to the Marine recruiter's office, and at the time, you know, a 17-year-old kid, I didn't know anything really about the military. I just thought that all they were all connected. And it was uh, Staff Sergeant Watkins was in there at the time, Randy Watkins. You might have seen him around Dallas. He said, I said, hey, do you know where Sergeant Parker is at? And he goes, no, why? He goes, well, I'm here to enlist today. And he said, uh, have you thought about the Marines? And I said, no. He goes, why not? And I said, because all you guys are fucking crazy. <laughs> I said it to him just like that. Hashtag like, truth. Watkins <laughs> laughed his ass off. I don't think he had had too many 17-year-old kids telling me he was fucking crazy. But yeah. he goes, he said something to me really profound. He said, will you listen? I said, yeah, I'll listen. So I came in and I sat down and he showed me the Marine recruiting video. And uh, you know, they had the, uh, back in the day, they had that recon sniper that had the camouflage, that real famous poster that was up mm -hmm. on the wall. And he showed me the video and it was talking about being the best of the best and like being elite or above the other services. But then the icing on the cake was he had the dress blues on the coat hanger and he said, now put on these dress blues. And once he put that on and I saw myself in the mirror, I mean, it was damn done, son. What it year was, was this? This was in 99. Okay. It, it was, was in, right? I was ready to go. This was before, back then they were mostly talking about the Korea stuff and Iraq uh, from Saddam. That was like the yeah. big talk. But we weren't really engaged with Iraq. It was before September 11th. So I joined as a reservist. I wanted to be a pilot. And so I joined as a reservist, went to boot camp, got out of boot camp. This was in 2000. And then I was on my way to college. I wasn't enrolled in college. And then uh, a year later, September 11th happens. And then within about four or five days, I think we were we were immediately on notice, but then they were giving us activation orders or they were telling us, hey, you're about to go to Afghanistan. And so September 11th uh, is really what changed my whole plan uh, yeah. and my whole what destiny. Unit were you I was out, out, out here in Fort Worth with uh, the Marine Wing Support Squadron 471 okay. back when it was uh, the Carswell Air yeah. Force Base. And so then uh, got activated and I... Uh, was on the base honor guard and the base color guard for a while and ended up getting hurt. 
got a herniated disc in my back from doing an honor guard ceremony. And uh, I didn't deploy to Afghanistan. Uh, I was actually on med hold for two years. They nearly medically retired me at 20 uh, from this back injury. And I said, no, I can still play this game. You just got to give me the proper medical treatment. And so uh, finally, a couple years later, I was a, a guinea pig for the FDA. It was prior to approval. I was a guinea pig for the Navy. And I had an artificial uh, implant, artificial disc put in my L4, L5, so down in my lower back. Okay. And then that same day after of surgery, I was walking around the hospital and like back to normal. A few weeks later, I was scuba diving. A few months later, I was returned to full duty. And then uh, two years after that, I did the EOD in-doc test and passed that. So pretty rigorous things that you're doing. One of the things we had to do is wear a, the bomb sw squad suit, mm -hmm. carry howitzer around on my shoulder, walk up one of those hills at Camp Pendleton. So I had to walk up from the bottom of the compound up the hill, through That's the cage. That's gotta be hot wearing that thing. And then after you drop, you have to safely drop the munition or safely put it down. So you mm -hmm. can't just like throw it over your shoulder. You had to take it and like gently put it down. And then you had to walk back down and then have to do uh, the fire, fire escape is basically you've got blown up and you're on fire and you have to get out of the bomb suit in like 30 seconds or less so i did all of that and you know i've never had back problems since then it's just been amazing so, so did you uh, continue on with eod or what happened i got out in 08 so i did uh three contracts so that was we're we we're talking about the time from 2004 is when i had the surgery 05 i got deployed to Afri africa and then 06 07 08 is when i had switched over that's when i did the lap move and and all of that and then april of 08 is when i uh decided to hang it up so what made you decide to hang it up? Yeah, that's a good question. I was tired of all my friends getting blown up is the first and the foremost. The second thing was this was the election time, and I really thought Hillary Clinton was going to get elected, and there was just no way I was serving under that bitch. Yeah. There was just no way. And so, uh, but after, after eight years of being in and playing the game, you know, uh, I got up to the rank of sergeant that was probably one of the funnest ranks there was, and it was, it was a great time. But... It was just time to start my life, and I wanted to have a family, and I was sick of moving. I moved 10 times in eight years. I had no stability, and I was just tired of the man telling me where I had to go or where I had to be all the time. And, you know, the government's, if you're in the military, the government is always ruining your plans, you know, or you're, <laughs> you, you kind of get USNC. used to it. So you signed a motherfucking contract. That's right, I did. You suckers miss Christmas. That's yeah, right. No, 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 yeah. Yeah, and that's what I don't think a lot of people understand about the military, especially since I know there's a lot of opinions going out right now on Ukraine and uh, Russia and whatnot. And you got all these people that want to sit on their couch going, we should go over there and fight. And I was like, oh, is that a fact? Maybe you should go over there and fight, right? And it kind of showed us how you feel about us on how you brought us out of Afghanistan. You want me to trust these same folks that treated us how we came out of Afghanistan to go get into another fight? Nah, I'm good. I'm good, you know. And, and so, but... The, 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 the very interesting thing, though, is I have a lot of conversations with people. So I said, look, I have a choice I can make now. Plus, I am way too – I've gone from swift, silent, deadly to slow, fat, and harmless. So nobody wants me. I'm half century old, beat up, worn up, and everything else. So, man, you did, if, you, if you make me go back in, you, are, you, you run out of people. Yep. And uh, uh, so I'm pretty safe to be able to say whatever I want, not really worry about the risk of being drugged back into it. But I, I tell folks, it's like, look, when you – when you sign those papers, 
You sign away your freedoms. You sign away your ability and your everything, freedom, right? And you know it. Like no, I mean, look, nobody held a gun to our head. Nobody said, "Hey, this way." I mean, this was not selected service, Vietnam. You're yeah. being told you got to go draft carts and all that. But it was just like you know, hey, look. I mean, I knew what I was getting myself into, or at least as much as I could at 17, and then uh, you know, because I was 17 when I enlisted as well. Mm-hmm. And, and but I was like, hey, I, I, right? I acknowledge this, right? Or the joke I usually make is. Uh, once a Marine, always a Marine, so why re-enlist? So after I was done with six years, I was like, yep, time to go. And then, uh, but no, in all reality is, and I wasn't really on the, off the hook then because I still had my uh, uh, IRR time oh, yeah. left, right? Yeah. Like, that's their ability. Like, something's going on, you're coming back. And uh, and I had no problem. I love my service, right? I love I love the people that I served with. You know, I don't want, I don't I don't want to regret any of it. Love it. You know, glad we got other people that are willing to go do it now. Yep. But I'd done my time. Like you said, you know, after a while, you're just like, ah, I've, done, I've done my time. I'm ready to move on. Right? Close that chapter and start yeah, the next close one. Close the chapter and move on. And, you know, and, and it was really funny. I don't know if you had the same issue as I did. It was trying to reassimilate back in civilian society because I, I went from mom and dad's house to the Marine Corps to, okay, here you go, right? You know, 23, 24 years old, like, I had never really experienced what it's like to have the freedom of a decision. Mm-hmm. Decisions have been made for me my entire life. Right. Quarter century almost. Right. And it was like, okay, well, what do I go do? And then, uh, and so for me, I think that's where a lot of folks, that's the make or break it moment, right? Yeah. Because uh, actually it was really funny. Is I, I was like after about 60 days, I was like, man, this civilian stuff ain't working out for me. And I went back down to MEPS, talked to the prior service guy, and I said, put me back in, coach. And I got out as a sergeant in E5, and they said, hey, we'll stick you back in as a Lance Cooley E3. And I was like, what? Nah, I ain't going to do that. Yeah. I was a corporal for 36 months before I made sergeant. Nah, yeah. I'm good. I'll, I'll, I'll go find something else. And so, and I did the reserves for about a year, but then I got tired of driving to San Antonio. So I was like, ah, I don't want to do this anymore. Plus, the, uh, one of the gunnies that was down there, I actually knew from uh, active duty, he'd come from my same unit and he was down there on I-9 duty and he just goes, look, man, if you're not going to be in it to win it, man, why are you wasting your time? And I was like, you know what? You're absolutely right. And then, so then off to my journey of being a civilian, right? Mm -hmm. So you're in 2008, you're getting out. What are you doing in that moment of transition of like, okay, I know I don't want to do this anymore. Now this. Yeah. So um, I had got, I was pretty lucky. I went from one sandbox, the San Diego beach, to another sandbox, the Pensacola beach, and it was great. Okay. <laughs> I got out in April and the water was that crystal clear blue in the distant area, and I stayed my ass there. I got a medical sales job. I thought I had, I thought I had nailed it. This was the middle of the recession, was went back in that time, and I was doing medical sales for a few months. I had actually started a business in 2005 called FH Financial. We did debt consolidation and we did some mortgages. I left that and got deployed. I gave the the reins over to my partner and so I just decided to stay in Florida for a while and take up roots there. I stayed there until uh, like October time frame when it got cold. The water turned from blue to brown and I was like ah, it's time to go back home to Texas for a while. So I ended up quitting that medical sales job, came back to Texas, and then I ran the company for another year. And that's actually 2009 timeframe. That's when I coined the term funnel science. Because when I came back from Florida, my business partner is stroking a check for $10,000 to buy leads. 
and the leads cost us $50 a lead. And so he told us our close ratio, we were clo he said 50% of these leads were closing into sales. And so I look up, we had this big old sales board up there and I was like, 10,000, how many checks? You know, we did a couple checks this month. It was like, we had 600 leads. Okay, we should be somewhere like around 300 sales for how many leads we had at that point. Well, Jeremy, our sales weren't even close to 300. I think it was like around 75 or 80. And I, I said to him, uh, you know, what's going on with these numbers? So anyways, he stroked that check. He gave it to the marketing company. I said, well, I'm gonna go work on some crystal reports. And so I went when and you spent- say crystal reports for the uh, It's just like a spreadsheet type report. But back in the day, crystal was the software or the reporting software. So we'd have to use that language or that, that type of code extracted out of our database to figure out what was working or what wasn't. So it took me about three weeks to get this report. And all I'm trying to do is get a sales report. How many leads do I have? What's the source or where are they coming from? And then what's the outcome? What's the close ratio and then the revenue? So it's a real simple report, basically four columns, right? So we had a list of all of the lead sources. We had how many leads, how many we closed, and then how much revenue. So I bring this report back to my business partner at the time. I slide the report across his desk. He's, he's stroking another check for 10 grand. And I showed him what our close ratio was. And take a guess, what do you think it might have been? I mean, he had done this eight times in a row, so we had dropped 80 grand on leads. Okay, so if he's saying 50% 300, and you're saying there's only 75, so really he's got a 25% turn rate, right? You'd think. Right. Turned out to be a big old goose egg. Really? Zero percent. And we had nine lead sources and they were all grouped together, and he really didn't know what was closing and what wasn't. He knew he had way more leads, and he knew sales was up, but he couldn't attribute it to that one source. Mm -hmm. So week after week, he's stri striking this check for 10 grand, giving it over to the company, happy as pie, thinking we're growing the business. And I show him this report, and, he's, and he responds back to me, he goes, well, what do we do about this? And I said, you know, man, maybe if we apply some science to our sales funnel, we just might get a better outcome. So I coined funnel science. And so you, the, the application of scientific testing or A-B testing, you go, you have your idea, and then let's come up with another idea, and let's run them both at the same time, and let's see which gets the better outcome. And then let's repeat that test and do a B version and a C version and a D version. The more times we repeat the test, the higher the growth rate could be. Yeah. Because we took the guess out of it. We didn't we didn't know if we had a theory, let's test it and figure out if our idea works or not. But let's not just go willy-nilly and blind into this and not know if it works or not. Let's apply some sort of logic to our decision making. Okay, we'll do this, we'll we'll take the risk, but we're gonna measure the outcome from it. And we're gonna measure and know if it if it works or not. And so oftentimes as humans, we think our ideas are the best ideas because we came up with them. But until you actually measure and know the outcome, you don't know how good of an idea that is or not. And then the other part was we had a bullpen of like 20 or 30 sales reps in our call center. 
So after I wrote the check or after we got the leads in, that was one part, just get the leads. But then the next part was, what are my sales guys doing? Or what are they following up with the leads? How are they doing a good job? Did they just tell this customer to screw off? Or, you know, there's all kinds of scenarios. So we, we had a real problem. We were trying to grow the company and we thought we were doing all the things right, but there was one key flaw. You cannot manage what you do not measure. And if you measure wrong, you're gonna manage wrong. Yeah. Just that's 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 a fact of life. Yeah. And so imagine trying to cut wood and you're trying to get six feet tables cut and you don't have a measuring tape and you're just eyeing it and guessing it. Well you're gonna guess wrong over and over and over. And that's what we were doing over and over and over. Yeah. So after nine months after coming back from the Marines off of active duty, um, we grew the company and the sales in January of that year were around 130,000. And in October that year, we were now at 350,000. Okay. So the funnel science idea worked. It worked really well. And at that point, my business partner and the investor in the company, they bought me out. That's about 2010 timeframe. And uh, that's when I thought, hey, you know, maybe funnel science, maybe there's something here with funnel science, and maybe yeah. we should look into this a little bit more. And I had quite a few of my uh, friends that owned businesses, they saw how much we had grown and had seen the success with like SEO and Google ads and stuff like that. They said, hey, would you come c consult with my business and show me what you're doing and help us out. So I did that for three businesses. And then in uh, 2011, I joined an SEO company and I did that for a year. An SEO company, tell the audience what that means. Search engine optimization. If you're trying to get to the top of the Google results, like on the first page of Google, that's what SEO does. And it helps you basically get your website up to the top where you're findable. So if somebody searches on your keyword, like real estate agent Fort Worth, you want to show up at the very top. That's what SEO does as a practice, or in theory, that's what SEO can accomplish. Yeah. And so the Google ads, those are the, like the first four listings at the top. Then you have the Google Maps, and then those are that, the 10 organic, the, what they call free listings. Uh, that's what you're, what you're trying to get to. If you run a business, you need to show up. You need to be findable and you need to show up on top. As if you're on page two or page three or page four, you know where, the, where, they, where they bury dead people at? Yeah. Page two. So nobody goes to page two, Yeah. right? So you basically need to be on the first page of the, of the business, uh, of the results. So we got there with FH Financial. We grew sales. We were a national company. Things were going great, but I was done with that. I was done with the debt and credit industry, and I was pretty much done with my business partner as well. I was tired of him screwing me, and we were just having some issues. So walked away from that, and then um, I had been working at this SEO company for about six or nine months and this customer called me up, Tina Brandon. She goes, Alex, you're so much effing better than these guys. What are you doing here? And then she said, I'm canceling. As soon as you start your company, I will hire you. So she became my first client. I quit later that week. It was the summer of June, June of 11. And that's when I started uh, F, uh, Funnel Science. So ran that company for the last decade and uh, we've done quite, quite well from startup, from just an idea, can this work, brought it to life and then we turned it into a software package and we've been competing against Salesforce and HubSpot for a couple years now. Oh wow, so what would you say is your biggest competitive advantage to, I mean those are two pretty big powerhouse names. 
Yeah. <clears throat> Neither of these companies were based on analytics and they have the fundamental flaw. You cannot manage what you do not measure. And if you measure wrong, you manage wrong. And neither of these companies are built on analytics and they cannot reconcile their data. And that is the core difference. We started with the data package and we started with analytics knowing the whole reason a business uses a sales tool or a sales CRM is to get more customers. If you sign up for any, any sort of sales or marketing as a business owner, if you put a dollar in, your expectation is, is there's a return on investment. So if I put a dollar in, I need $3 back or $4 back, mm -hmm. right? And so these companies, they don't measure that. And so you have to go to some reporting package like Crystal Reports or something, becomes quite expensive just to get a basic answer. What's my ROI? Because it's not built in. What's my close ratio? It's not built in. What's my lead quality or my source and being able to know like cost per acquisition, cost per customer, cost per lead. These things are like foreign to these companies. And then if you want that, you typically have to hire three or four pretty smart computer guys to be able to build this in or customize it in. And my thought is, is this is ridiculous because Salesforce at my company in 07 and 08, where they were quoting us, it was like a hundred grand to do it. And then some of the implementation projects I've been on are like 300 or 500 grand and they can't answer a simple sales question. How many leads do I have and what's my close ratio and like simple stuff. I was like, this is ridiculous. And so, they lock you into these long contracts that are super expensive. And at the end of the day, you're no better off than when you started. You have a database, you have your leads in there, but to get meaning out of it or to get some sort of substance and make good sound decisions, you have to hire guys for three to six months to work on it, to basically customize the software, which what I thought it should have done out of the box. Yeah. And it doesn't. So I would say uh, we're, we're just a fly on the hippo's ass compared to Salesforce. Their market cap, the last time I looked it up, was like 40 billion. So we're, we're not even a billion dollar company, but when we go head to head, if they're on Salesforce and then they see our software, we do one call closes because they are ready to switch. The cost is significantly different. And then ours has a complete sales package out of the box, ready to go. Talk about that sales package. Well, we track the full funnel. So going back to this concept, you cannot manage what you do not measure. And if you measure wrong, you manage wrong. Most businesses have holes in their funnel. And holes mean they're losing customers or they're losing leads or losing sales. So every day they operate, they're just leaking out their funnel and they're losing opportunities. And so here's the number one. The number one has to do with the phone, how you answer the phone or how the phone is greeted. Most businesses greet the customer with an automated machine, not a live person. So when you pick up the phone and you call me, do you expect to talk to my machine or do you expect to talk to Alex? Yeah, Alex. You, me? Yeah. Well, why do businesses put a machine in front of their customers, especially on the sales line, right? So our sales software tracks the click, it tracks the phone call, it records the phone call, it transcribes the phone call, it sends you the phone call if you need it, it automatically puts it in the lead record. These are all things that are real important because salespeople hate typing in notes to a CRM. They hate doing it, right? And then they hate duplicate entry. And so if somebody calls in as a business owner, I just paid for that phone call. I don't want to waste my sales guy's time with all of this minutia. Just close the damn deal. 
but document the notes and update the CRM. That's what most people think. Well, it becomes quite a, a task. If you get 10, if you have 10 leads in a day, that doesn't sound like a lot, but 10 leads in a day, if you spend 15 minutes on each one of those in a phone call, and then you document your notes after that, at the end of the day, you're gonna be freaking exhausted. And then by the time you got to like your seventh or eighth lead, you're not gonna really remember what you talked about on the second or third call, mm -hmm. right? And so we set out to solve a couple of problems. First off, measure correctly. And then second off, don't waste your salespeople's time. These are your key assets. They're supposed to be on the phone closing. Don't make them spend so much time in the administrative function, which you, you didn't hire them to do in the first place. You hired them because they have good people skills or good speaking skills, or they have the ability to show people what they need and answer their questions. They're not hired for administrative tasks. So out of the box, Funnel Science comes with call tracking, call recording, call transcription, and sentiment analysis. These are four different tools that are built in ours. Neither Salesforce or HubSpot do this out of the, out of the box. You have to sign up with another vendor and then integrate it into the tool. Then you have to build the reports and then you have to make sure the reports work. And so it's like, good grief, what kind of sales tool is this? This becomes a basic function so it's the same thing if you get a, a message, a web form, or somebody does them like an online appointment request, same thing. Most websites just send you an email and then your salesperson gets it and then they have to type in the name and type in the email and type in the phone number and all of this stuff. It's like, that's ridiculous. Just put it automatically in there. Well, as soon as the salesperson does the data entry, I guarantee you, you are losing business. Yeah. That is the hole in the funnel. As soon as the machine picks up the phone, you've got about 30 seconds. If you don't get an agent on the phone in 30 seconds, your abandonment rate starts going higher and higher and higher. If you put the caller on hold for a minute or two minutes, they're like, good grief, I'm out of here. They hit the back button, they go back to Google. If you're number one, they go to number two, they call your competitor and you lost that customer and it's gone. So Funnel Science was designed to first identify the holes in your funnel and then tell you as the business owner or the manager, here's your strong, here's where you're strong, here's where you're weak, here's where you're losing them. And if you, I know where you're losing your customers, you first have to identify. If you know where you're losing them, then you can go and do something about fixing it. But if you have no idea where you're losing them from, you can't manage what you don't measure. If you measure wrong, you manage wrong. Yeah. So the people are saying my marketing's messed up or my SEO's messed up or this and that. Now, the problem is, is you're not answering your phone and then oftentimes they transfer the call to a receptionist or somebody that just doesn't care. She's got 50 other things going on and you're just another distraction to her day. Then she puts you back on hold, transfer to the sales guy that isn't there because he's on break or talking to Susie Q and the customer just hangs up. So it's really funny about this is uh, I have a lot of people go, man, how'd you get to number one, blah, 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 you know? And I'm like, yeah, you know, there's some science behind it. You know, there's some processes, procedures. I said, but if you want to be successful in real estate, you can do 99 things wrong as long as you do this one thing right. And people go, what is that? And I'm like, answer your phone. <laughs> You lose 100% of leads you don't respond to. Yeah.
right? A hundred percent. hundred percent. And you're rarely going to get them back. You might get yeah. them back on an email campaign. Yeah, but once but that ship is sailed, that ship is sailed. Right? When they're ready to call and they pick up the phone and they're motivated, like, I'm ready to talk to you. What they have done in their head is they've already done their research. They've already laid, you know, surveyed who else is out there. And they said, I pick you. Yeah. And they're giving you the opportunity to lose their business. Yep. And and this is something that I have dealt with for years and years. When I started Funnel Science, I didn't want to be in the call tracking business, but I kept noticing over and over and over, we're bringing you the business and you're not closing it. And then you come back to me asking me why you don't get more sales. Well, we had to prove to you that you weren't answering your calls. Mm -hmm. Then we had to take it a step further. We had to record the call. And then we did transcription. The transcription was based on artificial intelligence. And here's what I kind of wanted to know. I didn't want to listen to all the call recordings. I don't have time for that. Just show me the good calls and the bad calls, or show me the calls that I need attention to, and then show me the real good ones. And I don't need to listen to all these call recordings. Is that, that's, that's such a, it's such a taxing thing to do for hours at a time to listen to calls. You could do it nonstop to coach your sales team. So we did sentiment analysis and basically wanted to analyze how positive or negative are the phone calls and are we getting good quality leads? That's one part of the problem is if I'm sending you junk, you're never gonna close junk, right? And so I needed to know, is the caller actually calling about marketing or calling about real estate. We, we do, uh, just to kind of go back, Funnel Science works with doctors, car dealerships. We sell fruitcakes on the internet. We've sold airplane parts, all sorts of commercial residential real estate. Like anything that's a for-profit business, Funnel Science has probably done and doing now or has, has a lot of experience. So if it's lead generation or e-commerce, that's our lane. We don't deal with nonprofits and we don't deal with the government. That's, we completely stay away from that. So if you're buying leads or you're trying to grow your sales team, it typically costs like 50 to $100 per lead. 10 leads, man, that's 500 to $1,000. You know, if you keep making that mistake daily to fund leads and then you're losing them on the phone, there's no way you can grow your business that way. Yeah. And so, man, it's a real common problem that people don't answer their phones. It, it, it's, the, it's the simplest way to solve your major sales problems, what I tell people. Yes. I said, unless you're talking to them, you're giving them every reason to walk through the door, right? Yeah. And then, like, I like what you said, is then when you are talking with them, give them what they're asking for yep. right if you are asking for a red bmw why do you want to sell them a silver hyundai yeah. right and so you've got and the only way to find out what it is they're looking for is you have to ask questions and then mm -hmm. listen mm -hmm. right then you can determine okay we're a potential fit to work together or if not which is how we grew ourselves to be the number one referral of business outside of us mm -hmm. that actually closed it was actually yeah that's in our wheelhouse but i'm not sure we'll be a fit i think this other team might be a fit for you or more importantly it was like oh well you were calling well i mean you heard how i did my 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 introduction right like hey just go on here click oh wow so you your your aunt turns out she needs to sell her house in Denver. Hold on, I can get you connected. You, you know there was something. So you're listening, mm -hmm. right? Then you determine in the fit, and then once we have the fit, right? You know so far, that's when we put them in the process, mm -hmm. right? 
And the process is meant to do a couple of things for us. One, weed out the people that have made it this far that we're probably not going to want to work with each other, them to us, us to them, maybe them and us together don't want to work with each other. But it's also we're training them our process, Yeah. right? Yeah. We are showing the client, as we have a saying, we provide, you decide. Yep. We're going to control the process. It's your money. You decide if you're going to pull the trigger or not, right? And then as we get them through that process, that's when they are that's that's when I call maybe coming out the other side of the funnel where it opens up, right? And they're exactly. like, Whoa, look at all this value I'm getting. I mean, I've got the top notch team full of lawyers and MBAs, you know, in a in an industry where you, 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 all you gotta do is just go down and get a real estate license, right? You don't have any have major certifications, or anything to go get the license, take the classes, get the take the test, get the license. Yep. And so then that's when we've got people, right? And they're and, and and they've been very pleased with that. And the thing is, is what we also did is we made it very simple. Yeah. People try to complicate things all the time. Like when somebody's trying to complicate something, like if one of my people are like, man, this just seems complicated, I said, that's because your client right now is trying to complicate this and you're allowing them to complicate it. Remind them how simple it is to follow our process and yeah. they chose us because we're doing it our way if they want to do it their way that's a different type of agent yep right and you can't and it goes back to what we're saying why would you take someone if this is if our if our methodology is we only bring on people that are going to follow our way mm-hmm. then why would you disrupt the system by bringing in someone that you in fact know wants to do it their way not your way right and you run into those things yeah. Yeah. I like what you said about listening because if you're talking, if you're in a sales job and you're talking, I guarantee you, you're not closing. The way you close, it starts with listening. And God gave us two ears and one mouth. And God had some simple math for us. He, des- he destined us, we're supposed to speak half as much as we listen. Or to restate that, you're supposed to listen twice as much as you speak. Mm-hmm. And for a salesperson, it's pretty simple. They're, the If there's no trust, there's no sale, right? Well, if you're talking over the customer, that's not trusting. The way that a customer builds trust with you is they ask you questions and then you respond. And you you try to, the goal is is to be as direct with your response as possible, not to try to take them down this long rabbit trail and get back to it. And a lot of these salespeople really overcomplicate things. It's like, why'd you say that, man? Just tell them the answer. You know, how much does it cost? Well, I don't know exactly how much it costs, but it's gonna be between this price and this price. Like, give me a range or answer. So this is something I've dealt with a lot. Training salespeople on how to talk to their customers, how to do the greeting. The greeting is actually really important because in that first 30 seconds, if you don't talk to the customer right or if you don't do the greeting, you're going to irritate them. And it's amazing how many times we see people hang up on the calls within the first minute. And you're like, what happened? You analyze the greeting and you're like, the customer said, I'm not going to deal with your shit. I heard the tone in your voice or I heard you're distracted. I don't have time for you. And there's too many other options for me to have to deal with you. So I'm going to hit the back button, go back to Google, find the next best one, and then call them. And then that, that's how it works. And so uh, salespeople always think they're really good closers. And this is something I've seen time and time again. You can't manage what you don't measure. You ask a salesperson, what's their close ratio? Oh, it's 50%. Or, oh, it's 70%. 
Well, show that to me. Mm-hmm. Prove it to me. Here's how you prove it to me. Give me a list of your current leads and show me your current sales. And let's just do some simple math. Or let's do it even better. Give me your last 90 days leads or last 180 days leads or last year's leads. And let's do the math four times. So current month, last quarter, half year, full year. Let's measure your close rate. The salespeople are never right. The only ones that are right are the ones that have the data. They're measuring, they know how important it is to measure, and they're genuinely trying to increase their batting average or their close ratio. And so you see off-the-cuff salespeople, ask them, what's your close ratio? The normal response is like 50%, 60%, this is what I see. In reality, it's around like 15% or maybe 20% for really good ones. And so, you just it's an accountability system and after spending 80 grand a month on google ads month after month after month to fuel leads to my sales team and then hearing nonsense like why didn't you update the crm why didn't you send this contract this is another one where people have holes in their funnel customer says yep i'm ready to sign send me the paperwork and then all they get back is a dead response because the salesperson for some reason forgot to send them the fucking contractor send them the invoice to pay and so when we've gotten so at the top of the funnel you're just trying to get the greeting right and get them to answer the phone but when you're down at the bottom of the funnel and in the sales cycle it's a little bit there's there should be more skin in the game at this point because the customer is more involved you spent more business cost and overhead to get them there and then now you don't want to send them the contract and then here's the deal man if you're the manager the owner and you're coming to me as the marketing consultant saying why don't i have more sales why well, need to have a good reason for you because 10% of your leads you got to this stage but you didn't send out the contract on so if you want to close more business just send these leads the contracts so that created a whole nother can of worms on the quality control side of this well it's really really funny to interrupt you for a second because the reason I was jacking with my phone is and then I realized he was in a meeting is I was gonna call one of my folks just to get him on speaker real quick to say what business are we not in mm. and I guarantee his answer would be the convincing business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't be in the convincing business. Customers sell themselves. They'll call you, yeah. and if you ask, if you have some intelligent questions, they will tell you exactly what they're looking for. And then yeah. again, you listen, and then they'll close themselves and just answer their questions. Tell it's amazing what you can find out on a deal whenever you're dealing with an agent on the other side and you ask questions. I would never answer 95% of the questions I ask of the other side. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny. People go, how did you find that out? And I was like, I asked them. Yep. And they told me. Yep. Right? Yep. Asking questions, you know, and I've talked about this on my show many, many times. It's like when I've tried to explain to my daughter. I say, go get an undergrad, not because you need a college degree or anything else, and you don't even know what you're going to do with your life. It doesn't matter if it's underwater basketball even, but learn how to learn. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. yeah. as you get a little bit older and you kind of figure out what path you want to go down, then go get a gra- graduate degree in that per se, whichever, because that's where you're going to learn to ask the right questions. Learn how to learn so that when you ask the right questions and you receive information, now you can go run it down. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it sounds like that's what you've made the science to be able to do here is is to be able to funnel it down. Yeah, exactly right. And identify where the bottleneck is or where the hole is in the funnel and then find a way to plug it or change it or If you don't know what to do, come up with three or four ideas and test all three or four of them. Measure the outcome, whichever gets the best result. Run with that one. Okay. And so that's what what we did. And then, uh, so once you clog all the holes in your funnel or plug them up, 
that's when you can grow the business. But if you only have one funnel running, you're all leveraged on that one funnel. Well, I see a lot of businesses go all in on Google or all in on Facebook, and then Google changes the algorithm and all of a sudden their lead yeah. sources are gone. So you can't be con depending on one funnel. You really need four to seven funnels at on all times producing, regularly producing. When you get to four, you're really stable. When you get, the more you have, the more growth you have. But at some point, you could have too many leads coming in and then you're losing business because you have too many leads to follow up with and then you're not closing anymore because you have all these extra leads. So this is another problem that we see. People get to a point where they're in that growth stage, but they don't have the systems of the processes in place to ensure that they execute a simple process because nobody wants to go through a pain in the ass sales process nobody has time this is another thing that's real common with doctor's offices you ever called up a doctor's office and schedule an appointment as a new patient and then they send you an email with like 10 forms to fill out and they say something like don't come in until you fill out all this paperwork mm -hmm. that's the number one way to kill a sale isn't that your job aren't you the patient intake like i have to fill it out and then and then you're going to ask, ask me these same questions again when I come in. So with our doctor's offices, we typically have to get them to take this step out of the way and make it easy for the patient to schedule an appointment, not difficult with all these forms to fill out, make it as streamlined and simple as possible. If you don't do that, they're going to go to somewhere else that will do that. There's a few exceptions with this. If you're the best brain surgeon in the world, or if you're like some super specialized person, and you're the best of the best of the best, people will somewhat tolerate that. But for average Joe business owner, there's other options. If you make me fill out this long form, I'm just not gonna do it. I'm just not gonna come in. Mm -hmm. And so when we take that one step out of the doctor's office's funnel, it's amazing how many more sales they get. Yeah. And so really, what do you need to know to schedule an appointment? Are, are you in the area? Can you come to the appointment? Do we treat this? Do you have insurance? Are you gonna cash pay? Everything else doesn't really matter, you know? If you're not in my area, then don't schedule the appointment. If you can't afford it, then don't schedule the appointment. If you don't, if you have insurance and you're not in my network, then go somewhere else. Like. Why do you need my whole family medical history before you can determine this basic question of should I come in and meet with the doctor or not? Yeah, that that's pretty. Uh, yeah, that's pretty. That's actually really really interesting. So, so what what would you say is like the final win for them in the funnel, other than winning the deal and all of that? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the what's that one last? When you know this step happens, it, it, it's coming. Gotcha. That's yeah. a good one. When you can get to the step where your sales becomes predictable and you can forecast into the future, so you're, you're doing work today and you know your current performance today and you can anticipate into the future or predict in the future like three or six months down the line how where your sales target's going to be and if you're hitting your sales target or not. When you get to that point where you have predictive analytics, you've won the game. Yeah. Until you have predictive analytics, you're still trying to figure things out. And in grad school, they taught us there's basically six levels of data collection. Level zero means you're collecting no data, okay? And then level five is when you're at predictive analytics. So 
Predictive analytics means that you're able to have the data, you can come up with a theory, you can test your theory, and then you can apply a predictive model to it to validate if this is gonna happen or not. So this is kind of where I got in life. I got sick of doing the sales funnels. I got, I've told over a thousand businesses, you need to answer your phone. <laughs> I never set out to solve that problem. And I actually got sick of running the sales funnels. We've done it for over a decade, and when COVID hit, it completely changed my business. We lost all of our restaurants, we lost all of our daycares, all of our travel business. We were dealing with half the country was in like 50% mode, some of the country was completely shut down. And I came up with this idea. I said, could we set up a sales funnel that had no customers? I didn't want to deal with anybody, I didn't want to deal with a buyer or a seller anymore we could set up a sales funnel that we could just turn on and make revenue, make money for us, but we didn't have to talk to anybody. What would that funnel look like? And so we came up with a crypto trade bot where we're executing electronic trades algorithmically with a predictive algorithm, and we're predicting if the trade is gonna be profitable or not. So if you can predict and know what you're doing is gonna win or not, you go, well, if I have an 80% chance that this is trade is gonna win, would you take that bet? Yeah, I'm gonna take that bet. So predicting or using data to predict the future, if you can get to that point in your business, you've won. And then when somebody's gonna come and try to buy you out, they're gonna give you a big time multiple, big time. How's that working out so far? We have four bots on. We started last uh, March, March 10th. We presently have four bots March, on. March 10th of 21? 21, so we're just over a year. Okay. We're 13 months into this project. We went from knowing nothing about this to building the full software, and we have four bots on that have higher than an 80% accuracy. We have one bot on that has about a 30% accuracy. Now, when you say bot for the audience, what do you mean by bot? It's a computer program that runs on its own. Once we turn it on, it just runs and executes the program or executes the algorithm over and over. So it doesn't require any human intervention, no human monitoring. It's just a bot that runs and does whatever you tell it to do. So you could have a bot like auto replies on your emails. You can have auto reply or drips. These are driven by a computer. Those are kind of like a fractional bot, a bot with just the rules, follow a series of rules. Then you can have bots with brains in them where they can think on their own or kind of they can think within the conditions that you, that you set them up for. And so that's what we did. And I've been doing funnel science for a decade and I said, you know what? Uh, crypto's been around for a decade at this point. It really seems to take off, but we're really early in the adoption of this. Not that many people have Bitcoin or Ethereum that they're holding. What about you? Are you holding any, no, any crypto? I'm, I'm not very educated in it. So yeah. uh, I stay away from things I'm not educated in. I hire other people that are educated in it. It's kind of like when uh, when somebody goes, hey, you know, do you do any online day trading or any of that? And I was like, no, nah, I pay a guy to do all that for me. Yeah. Right? You know, just like in my arena in real estate, you come to me because I'm the best there is, but you're not going to come to me to ask me where you should go buy your car. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll send you someone who I think knows a lot about cars. Maybe Ken McLucas, you know, who's a retired master sergeant over there, DNM Auto Leasing. Hey, Kenneth, you listening right now? That was an easy plug for you. Uh, and but it, it, it's I, I I go to people and go, hey, look, if you're really good at this, mm -hmm. that's why I go to you because you're good at this, yeah. right? And 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 then because there's there's so much information. Like I'll be honest with you, 
this is why actually this is kind of fascinating that we're bringing up the topic on crypto is because I don't understand. Like when I hear mining for cryptos, yeah. Like I don't, I don't understand what that means. Okay, I'll tell you. Okay, tell me what that means. Yeah, we did mining for a while. It's basically you turn on a computer, you plug it into the wall, you plug it into the internet, and then you download the software. In it, the mining is a validation. So let's talk about a credit card purchase real quick. Mm -hmm. If you go down to 7-Eleven, you get out your credit card and you want to put in $50 in, in your gas tank, you just get out your credit card and pays it, right? Yep. Well, who who knows that that's, a, that's your transaction? You're using a plastic card and you're putting it into a machine. Well, how does that money come out of your bank account and then go into 7-Elevens? Well, Visa or MasterCard are the conduit for it. And they're the ones that authenticate that Jeremy used his 16-digit number and we authorized this transaction. We took the money out of Jeremy's account and then we put it into 7-Eleven's account. So there's a validation process there. Okay. That's what mining is. They're validating a transaction. Okay, so when you say mining, it means somebody's already holding the cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah. And you wanna buy it. Mm -hmm. The mining is the validation of connecting seller to buyer. Exactly. Okay. And with crypto, it's a peer-to-peer -peer ledger, which is, you have your bank account or your ledger and I have my ledger and he has his ledger. We all have our own ledger, it's peer to peer. Well, in the present banking world, it's a bank ledger. You don't have it, your ledger, it's your account on the bank's ledger, Yeah. right? And that's what the difference is with crypto is it removes it away from the bank and it removes it away from the government and it's now peer to peer. And so we have all the, all the citizens or all of the people of the world, if you have a crypto account, it's basically that is your account, that's your address, that's only yours. Well, if you and I do a transaction, if I pay you money, there has to be other people that authenticate it. That's where the mining comes in or the validation comes in. And so what Bitcoin does or Ethereum does is they reward the miners the miners are the ones that have the, that are running the computer program. They reward them or they pay them in crypto. And so if you mine for connecting the buyer and the seller, they don't they don't do the connection. That they that happened somewhere else. They just did the authentication and the verification, and they're, they're basically authenticating the peer ledger to say this transaction occurred. That the money left from one account and it went to another, and then here's the proof of it. So you have what's called proof of work or pr proof of stake. These are, con these are terms within the crypto world. Basically means we're proving the work, we're proving that you, there's proof that this happened. Without that proof, who's to say that the money should leave my account and go into your account? So let me ask you this. So, and this is where this is, again, I have a lot of ignorance around this subject. Let's say I'm buying crypto from you. Now it's gonna be in my account. How does that, how is the value determined there? Man, the value is determined, basically supply and demand is one big part of this. So with Bitcoin, there's only 21 million Bitcoins. Okay, that was gonna be my next question is, is it something kind of like, you know, in the United States, we printed more money in the last two years yeah. than we have the previous hundred years. Is that something that happens in crypto? Or it's like, no, hey, we started this crypto trading, whatever, there's only 21 million of them. And there will never be more.
And then with Bitcoins, there's been a lot of uh, electronic wallets that have that people have lost their passwords or they've wound up in the trash or there's reasons that basically the coins cannot circulate anymore because they're locked down. So with some of the other tokens like Shibu Inu or Dogecoin, you might have heard of these. They're real big with like- Elon Musk and Dogecoin. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. These have unlimited supply. On, on some of these others. Okay. So some have fixed supply and then there's others that are infinite It would seem supply. like the fixed supply would do, would benefit more than the unlimited. Absolutely, so yeah. so Bitcoin and Ethereum are the two coins. They have currently, they're about 60% dominant of the market. The market uh, as of a few days ago was over $2 trillion. And then, so Bitcoin is 40% of that. Ethereum was the other 20% of that. So you're basically talking about like gold and silver for the digital coins. And then you have all of these other, what they call alt tokens or altcoins. And I don't remember where it's at now, but there's something I think like around 17,000 of them now. So there's about 50 of them that are pretty significant that have quite a bit of adoption and quite a bit of market cap uh, in them. And then there's a whole bunch of them that are just speculation that, that are worth like less than a penny and people just speculate that they're gonna they're gonna take off okay. and so it's a lot of uh, speculation in the altcoins where the Bitcoin or the ethereum that's that's been proven this has been around for over a decade now we have countries that are using this as their currency the whole thing with Russia and them locking down the banks they pretty much prevented the citizens of Russia from doing normal business, well, crypto allows that to continue to happen because we're no longer using the government's money and we're no longer using the bank's money. So let me let me ask you a question, Ryan. So I just looked it up and it said crypto right now is trading for 43,680. There's 21 million of them. Yep. Brings it out to about 917 billion. Let's just round it out for math or marine track. Call it a trillion dollars worth of stuff out there. Yeah, on Bitcoin. Two questions, on Bitcoin. So in other words, if I buy one of your Bitcoin from you, mm -hmm. I am giving you $43,680. Yeah. Right. Or the equivalent of whatever currency we agree on that does that. Yep. When these passwords and everything else get locked, lost, whatever, nobody can access it, you're removing the supply, therefore making this more scarce, therefore yeah. meaning it run more. Yep. Okay. So why do we see that, you know, when you look at the, the, the trajectory of it, yeah. you hear like, man, I bought Bitcoin when it was 200, I sold it at 20,000 and now it's 40,000, I should have waited or somebody that bought it 20,000 and oh shit, it went down to 200. Yep. Right. Yep. So, so what is the, the, the running thing there that keeps that thing where it's very less stabilized and more erratic. Let, let me talk about this uh, really intelligent guy named Michael Burry. He talked about this uh, topic. He, he basically said, if you do not know about open interest, then you know nothing about crypto. Okay. Open interest is basically margin or it's, uh, it's uh, like short sales or long sales. It's contract sales. The open interest from what, from what we have seen is a highly predictive variable that will predict the direction of the price. So last week, there was about 49 billion in open interest. As of this morning, there was 44 billion. So if you looked at last week, the price was quite a bit higher mm -hmm. than it is now. It's like $4,000 higher. 
Uh, I think it went up to like almost 49,000. So it lost $6,000 in a week because there was $6 billion of open interest pulled off of the exchanges. So when what we have seen over and over and over with open interest is that it goes up and down, up and down. It goes down into the 20,000 or 20 billion range and then goes up to the 30 billion and the 40 billion. It does not cross over 50 billion. We've only seen it happen once or twice. And so 50 billion seems to be kind of like a plateau or that's, that's when there's the most amount of leverage in the market. So anytime it goes up, it's going to come back down. And anytime it goes down, it's going to come back up. And it is widely fueled by the banks and in whales doing very, very large transactions. And we're able to see that on the peer ledger. We're able to sort like addresses that have more than a million or addresses that have more of a billion. We can see that on the ledger. And then if you go in, Jeremy, and if you put a billion down in the account and then you do a 5X coin, you could have 5 billion in open interest on that. And that's what these whales do. They jack the price up as soon as it comes up. They pull their order and they sell and they made $6,000 a token or $10,000 per. And so it is widely based on open interest. So you have supply and demand is one part about it. Then, so supply and demand is basically how many people are buying this or accepting this. And then you have the market cap, how much money is in there. And then you have open interest and open interest is like credit and risk. And that's in. what your bots are looking for is like yeah. which wells are getting it. That way, whenever they do dump it and it does go down, that's when you go in and buy, wait for it to go back up, kind of watching for those wells, do what they're doing, and then you're exiting out at that point yep. and then waiting for it to go back down. But, exactly. you know, typical old stock market, buy low, sell high kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. There's a, a guy named Wyckoff. He was around about 100 years ago, Wyckoff Theory. This is highly relevant to today. Uh, it's something you should read about mainstream stock market and how manipulation is done or how the market moves and why it moves. And so this is uh, uh, the theories that Wyckoff wrote about 100 years ago are highly relevant to today. Okay. And so it's a lot on supply and demand, but there's also a history or a track record. Crypto, when the first Bitcoin transaction was 10,000 Bitcoin for one pizza. That was the very first crypto transaction. Could you imagine holding 10,000 Bitcoin now? Oh, man. Yeah. At 43,000 a and pop? Then, and then, again, excuse my ignorance, correct me if I'm off on this, is didn't Bitcoin get uh, created by the two twins that were doing the Facebook stuff with uh, Zuckerberg? Is that right? No, I don't think okay. so. Okay. So then who... How, how, I, I guess my question more so, let me rephrase this, is... Those are the Winklevoss twins. Okay. So who created 21 million Bitcoin and who decided this is what it is and that's all there's going to be? I'm going to butcher the guy's name. It's, uh, I believe his, it's pronounced Satoshi. He was, uh, I think, a Japanese man that wrote the, the first paper on this, okay. uh, talking about digital currency. Now, he wasn't actually the first one that did it. Digital currencies were actually pioneered back in the 60s. We just didn't have the technology back then to be able to bring it about. And the federal government has been trying to do digital currency for many years, and they have been unable to figure it out. So I believe it Satoshi was the, uh, the author of digital currency and then how to bring it about. Okay. And so he wrote the paper on it, published it, he built the computer program, he turned on Bitcoin, and then he started selling it to people. 
gathered miners. The more miners came out, the more transactions. Now, what was interesting about Bitcoin and, and the crypto market and what a lot of people think is, is this is only used by drug dealers and criminals and, and people that are you know in the black market. That may have been true in the beginning, but there's a good reason that people don't want to do with the banks. Yeah. You know, the banks screw their customers nonstop with fees. And then another part about crypto has to deal with the federal government and how we're seeing crazy inflation now because for the last couple of years, the government's just had this blank check where they're printing money nonstop. Yeah. And so now we're seeing gas prices skyrocket, you know, that's because the government's printing this money. Well, as citizens, we should have some say, like they shouldn't be able to just devalue our currency overnight. And that's where crypto comes in is it takes the authority away from the bank and it takes it away from the government and it's now peer to peer and we say what it's worth. So let's go back to this mining question only because I'm now, you know, it's starting to come a little more full circle for yeah. me to understand. You're the seller on the buyer. Mm -hmm. The mining is the validation of the transaction between you and I. Yeah. Okay. So when you hear someone saying mining, they are the third party verification of this moving from you to me. Yeah. Is essentially what mining is. Yeah. Okay. And in doing the mining that's done by a computer, not actually a person. Correct. So when you hear of these enormous data centers, yep. all these computers, is that because you need a computer per mining token or mining transaction? Or why do you need these big data centers? Does that make you sense? only need one computer okay. to start mining. Okay. The reason why is because it's so lucrative. It's so, it's so effective. You don't have to pay humans. They're, your overhead is basically your electricity cost. It's the upfront cost to buy the asset. You buy the computer and then you, you get the software program for free and then you turn it on. Well, it's, it's very lucrative to do mining because it runs 24 seven and it never stops unless the internet goes out or the power goes out. So Jeremy, what business can you be in that can run 24 seven with no humans involved and it's always making money? Like so, what other business is out there that does that? I'm gonna do another math for Marines equation here, right? Is let's say we have a thousand people and each one of those people have 21,000 Bitcoin. Okay. All right, so there's a thousand. What you're saying is you only need it thousand computers to do the mining well don't put words in my mouth like yeah. that i don't know the exact math on right. it there's because my question is is if you've got a mining computer and i got a mining computer my man gauge over here on the soundboard says hey i found somebody i want to sell them to mm -hmm. what causes him to use your mining versus my mining? well that's done automatically it's not he doesn't get to choose me or he can't choose one or the other it has to deal with the 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 uh the complication in the algorithm or how the how many years does it take to crack the algorithm so if there's only one miner and like let's say we're doing 10 bits well that could be cracked in like a couple months but if we have 10 miners or 20 miners and the algorithm is now 16 digits long or 30 digits long to crack that or to hack that algorithm or hack that code now it takes like a hundred years so, it's so you're saying that algorithm whatever 16 digit number whatever it is that's the coin 
Well, that's the validation. The validation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what serves as the actual coin? It's just like in your bank account. If you log in and look at your bank account, you see how many dollars are in there. Yeah. That's how many dollars are assigned to you. It's okay. in your bank account. You don't physically have them. Okay. They're in the bank. Okay. It's just so, like in my exchange. I have, let's say. I'll, so help, help me out with this, right? So the you're smiling. Do you know what he's talking about? Okay. So I'm, I'm clearly, I'm, I'm clearly the knuckle dragger here, right? Because I'm fascinated by this, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand this. Mm -hmm. So the mining is the validation. Mm -hmm. So what if my main gauge is over here selling to me and we need a validation, mm -hmm. why is that complicated? Well, because you don't want it to get hacked. You don't want to lose your money. Okay. And so hacking is a big deal. So we have to uh, encrypt it and, and authenticate it. And then once that hash has so been So the mine set, is the, is the hey, we're going to decrypt what it is and re-encrypt it and then move it over here. And then he feels safe because he got his money in. I got my new coin. And then it's on the peer ledger. And then it's on the peer ledger. Okay, okay. Peer ledger. You're never going to say I'm that bright again, are you, Gage? <laughs> so this is fine. So, so, all right. So you've built these four bots that are out there mining, right? Or no, predicted trading, right? They're looking at high and low but you're not in the mining yourself. We started in the mining. We sold our mining machines because we knew we could make more money in trading. So when we got to that point, we so turned- How much does a mining person make? I mean, uh, depends on how many machines you have, but we were making on one machine between five and 500 and 1500 a month, just plugging it into the wall and doing nothing. Hmm, interesting. Okay, okay. I'm gonna stop there because my brain is, you probably see smoke coming out of my ears because I've wanted to understand this for a long time. You can hear Gage over here laughing. And not to mention, this is like the next to the last episode that we're recording after four days of recording straight. So my brain's already gone down a little bit of mush. So if I even try to remotely ask a somewhat sophisticated, somewhat intelligent question, whatever your response is, even if it's delivered in the Jeff Fox where they are you smarter than a fifth grader level, I probably still wouldn't comprehend it. <laughs> is So going from funnel science, evolving that to trade for you, mm -hmm. right? Is that a platform that I go, hey, Alex, I want to get into this trading. You're like, okay, yeah, we'll build you a bot and you pay us to have a bot or y'all just sticking solely to yourselves. You're like, we don't need any more customers, don't need any more. That's a question makes sense. It's a great question. Yeah. It's been asked a few times. Yeah. We don't want any more customers. I don't want your headache. But if you want to buy me a, a buy a bot, we'll sell you a bot. We, you just have to get it get established on the exchange, give me the key. I set it up for you. It's one and done. You don't have to How mess much with it. it. How I much don't is have it? to mess How with much it. Is it. Minimum investment's $10,000. You're paying us $1,000 for the robot. You keep the 10,000, it stays in your account. It never comes to me. And then we turn on the bot and it trades for you. So how do you get paid? If, I, if I'm putting 10 grand in the account, how do you get paid? We got the $1,000. Oh, so I pay you a thousand. You pay us a thousand. You need ten thousand in the trade. But I gotta have ten thousand in the trade. Yeah. But if the crypto's forty thousand, that's not enough. Well, on Ethereum, it's yeah. like three thousand dollars right now. So yeah. ten grand would be like three point three Ethereum. Oh, so that goes back to you were talking what about you were Bitcoin. saying earlier on the open interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Gacy. 
Hey, you can stop laughing. Like you're the most introverted person in the world over here never says a word. He's literally falling. Your headphones almost fell off. You're laughing so hard over here. Okay, so okay, okay, okay. All right, all right, all right, all right. I think I, I think I'm. All right, I know enough to be far from even dangerous at this point, but it, I, I could certainly say thank you. I have a better understanding of this now than I did an hour and a half ago. Good. Right? Good. Hopefully the audience does too. Because people, yeah. The questions you're asking me, I get asked these same questions all the time. People want to know about the mining. They want to know like, why does the price swing so much or what's causing that to happen? And then how do you know when to buy and how do you know when to sell? And then people are just generally, like we're still really early on in the adoption. There's not, it's yeah. not that mainstream yet. Like people are talking about it in the news all the time, but as, as far as actually people, skin in the game with money in the game i think it's like less than five or six percent adoption worldwide right now and then like so basically you've built a computer who is your stock trader yeah that's pretty impressive it's not the bank has nothing to do with the government it's completely on our own that's pretty that that's that's pretty fascinating man that this is pretty fascinating of course i love nothing more than when i see a fellow veteran especially a fellow marine be incredibly successful by you know it goes back to that improvise overcome and adapt that we learned in the marines right covid hit and it was like hey well we didn't get a decision on whether or not the government was going to decide who got to go to work and who didn't and so forth so you could either sit around and watch netflix and hulu all day or you could get busy yep while i was getting busy you were getting busy and this is pretty good stuff okay so i like to end cap everyone that's going if you open up the time capsule today and, and you know, because it's like 20, you're, you're 40 years old and you open it up and 20-year-old self left you a magical ticket that said you have the ability to come back in time to when you were 20 years old to say, tell me either to do this or don't do this and I will actually listen and it'll make a significant difference and impact in my life going back to go back through time. What's that one thing you tell yourself at 20? What do you tell Alex at 20? Learn to dance. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why I'm laughing here in a second. So go, ahead, go ahead. I had this, uh, this girlfriend, and uh, I, went, I went out to the country western bar all the time, and she wouldn't go with me, and I wanted to go dancing. She wouldn't, she wouldn't. So it wasn't until about 27 I actually learned to dance and actually got ballroom. Or I did country western first, and then the line dancing, and then I did ballroom dancing. So I did it for years. Man. It opens up so many doors for you, but if you're a man and you're trying to get a woman, or if you're a woman and you're trying to get a man, if you can meet people on the dance floor. Oh, dude, you can look like a troll, and if you can dance and GQ can't, guess who's guess who's All getting the day. phone number? Guess All who's getting day. Yeah, yeah. And even if you don't get the number, you're having fun, you're exercising. It's generally and GQ's good. mad on the sidelines because oh, he's got two time. left feet, and you're out there twirling his big hot time. girlfriend around. The reason I was laughing and my man Gage is over here laughing is is we're literally, at the, you know, when we get this next episode with Scott coming in, we've literally recorded damn near 100 of these episodes. Mm-hmm. So 100 weeks worth, right? I wow. mean, just a lot, one man. dropping, right? When I ask that question, what would you tell 20-year-old self? The reason he and I have been laughing, especially in this series, is because we figured we've recorded enough of these that the answers are going to start being the same as somebody else's. Oh, yeah. We're not going to hear something different. And that's why he and I have been laughing is because, which we love. This is this is actually because it's nothing but candor is that, holy cow, like we just heard another one that, that, you know, it's just candor. Like, what would you tell 20-year-old self? 
You know, it was like the last one when Dr. Yoho, it was like, what would you tell yourself if uh, you were 20 years old? He goes, be more like Span and me and Gage were laughing. And I was like, no, seriously. And he's like, no, man. He goes, I spent all my time doing, you know, getting an MD and being a doctor and going through all this brain damage. And he's had some real estate investments and stuff. And he's like, I, I should have focused on real estate, mm-hmm. right? I would have made more money, been happier and less stress yeah. and everything else. That's like when you said you learned to dance. I just, I love that, right? I wasn't, I wasn't laughing at you. I was, I was laughing because I was like, how many of these episodes did we record before we finally hear someone say the same thing as somebody else? Because it's bound to happen, yeah. right? And that's why it's just been exciting. You know, we make it to, I'm going to put Scott on the hot seat, be like, man, you better listen to every one of these and come up with something different because I, w- I want to be able to say that we've recorded for two years and never had the same answer. Uh, that's a great question, by the way. That- uh, it, it really is, you know. I mean, and it's kind of funny is I think that answer can sometimes change, right, mm-hmm. depending on where you are in the moment. Definitely. And uh, um, I had somebody ask me, I think it was early on in the episodes, and they said, uh, if you could go back, what would you tell yourself? I was like, not treat my body like a septic tank, you know, mm. and just take better care of myself thinking that, you know, I'm not made of Teflon and one day I will be a half a century old. Or as my daughter reminded yeah. me a few weeks on my go on my birthday when she flew in that I was closer to death than birth. <laughs> uh, so, all right, people want to learn more about you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not that you're in that space, want to go building bots and all the time, but what, what plug would you like to put out there? You can uh, learn more about me, alexfender.com or funnelscience.com. I, uh, I'm really passionate about 60s model Mustangs. So if you ever want to talk about Mustangs or hot rods or Marines or crypto or sales funnels. Eleanor. Give me a jingle. <laughs> Remember Actually, that movie? Oh, I love that car. Gone in 60 oh, seconds. Man, Gone in 60 seconds. That's people's dream car. I actually got an Eleanor from San, ha- San Jose, California just a few months ago, uh, back in the end of the uh, fall for $40,000. I cannot wow. believe it on an eBay auction. Wow. So I think I'm going to sell this car for around 175 to 200 oh, here. That, does, that doesn't suck. Wow. That's a, that's a win. Okay. So if you were driving down the road and you didn't have a chance to be able to write down all that information, as always, you can go to our website, myexperiencedrealtor.com. Click on uh, podcast, scroll down to Alex Fender, read more. We'll have all those links and everything else. And of course, If you're ever looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet and you want someone who's not an idiot that will take care of you, we will do all the vetting for you. Just go to the homepage, click find a trusted professional, fill out the information, and we will get you connected. If we don't already have someone in that area, we will go vet them. Alex, Marine, Semper Fidelis, thanks for coming on. Great to meet you, man.